Welcome to Chief Evangelist. I'm your host, Ethan Butte. I'm on a mission to explore and understand the role of the Chief Evangelist and the movement behind it. How should founders, investors, and C-suites be thinking about it? How does it benefit the company? Which companies and markets need evangelism most? What does the work involve? What does success look like? And who's a good fit as a chief evangelist? That's what we're exploring at chiefevangelist.com and in conversations like this one, which is brought to you by Ringmaster Conversational Marketing and their evangelist-powered podcasting package. Learn more at ringmaster.com. Today, we're learning from an associate professor of marketing at the University of Notre Dame's Mendoza College of Business. He's also taught at the University of Chicago, the University of Illinois, and Northeastern University. He's the author of Digital Marketing Analytics, in theory and in practice. And he spent more than a decade at Google, including nearly two years as chief analytics evangelist. Kevin Hartman, welcome to Chief Evangelist. Thank you, Ethan. So very happy to be here and really looking forward to our discussion today. Yeah, me too. I'm excited to get into your story uh, all in, by the way. We're going to talk about the book. We're going to talk about higher education, professor, instructor, some parallels to evangelism there in my mind, Mm -hmm. and I want to hear your take on that. Mm -hmm. We're certainly going to get into Google, um, but before we do all those things, I would love to go super high level and ask you, Kevin, what is the most important job of a chief evangelist? Well, I mean, there are so many. Right, so many, so many different things that uh, an evangelist can and should do. I, for me, the thing, particularly in the role that I was playing, what was most important was this idea of thought leadership. Right, it was really bringing able to uh, being able to bring a an expert voice, an expert opinion, some uh, something that would help clients, help whomever I was connecting to just make better decisions, use the technology around them better, make sense of all the complexity that was out there. And being that that expert, that thought leader in, in areas is really what was the most important aspect of the role I was playing as Google's chief analytics evangelist. And I would extend to, to expert presence. And I don't think you'll fight me on that. Talk about the, because you said, you know, expert, um, you know, opinions, expert views. um, And you certainly brought those. But I I assume too, especially because you were meeting a lot of these folks in person, big accounts, big brand names. Um, Talk about the expert presence piece of it as well. Because this is kind of the human piece of it, I feel like in particular. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, look, for the, the things that we were talking about, there is certainly a blend of art and science for sure. You know, we, we would come in and, and I, and I would, um, given whatever challenge the, the client was facing, you know, we would bring a very scientific, robust solution to that. But unless we could communicate it in a way that people who didn't have an understanding, certainly of those, those scientific underpinnings and probably most likely didn't have the, uh, didn't have the patience for them either. They just needed the problem solved, right? Um, being able to, to present ideas in that way was important, but also just with the presence, uh, being able then to, to uh, establish credibility, I think was really important as well, right? Um, uh, because many times, you know, we are there talking to this, this uh, advertiser because they are struggling with something. They, they don't know the solution. They want to turn to someone who has done it before or who 
through their experiences can provide a solution, a solve. Um, but the, to that point and to your point, the, the, the credibility aspect was really, really important for sure. Yeah. So Google is one of those, uh, you're the first uh, Google uh, evangelist on this podcast, but there are many there. Um, and there have been for years. Uh, in fact, on the other podcast I host, I interviewed um, the chief education evangelist who is traveling globally and advancing like this point of view about the world and the the human benefits of this technology. I think Chromebooks were probably part of that process, et cetera. Um, to the degree you can generalize, because I am it's a giant company. <laughs> I'm sure you only do yeah. some tiny yeah. fraction of the people in yeah. the organization, but um, to the degree that you are are able to or you're comfortable doing it, um, can you generalize, like, why has Google had um, several evangelists uh, over a long sure. period of time? Like, how did they view the role? I mean, you know, Microsoft, Amazon also come to mind in this vein, um, but there aren't that many companies that have a history of evangelists in the positions. Yeah, yeah. I, I think it's 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 a pretty simple reason as to why, right? Um as to why the evangelist role was so uh, relevant for Google and frankly, so successful. Uh, it, it really does create a great deal of value. And that's because Google is, um, for all of its attempts to simplify what it's doing, it, it is selling a, a very sophisticated and complicated set of services and products at the end of the day. You know, you know the front end of a, of a Google search page you understand search advertising, but how do all the things that are going on in the background behind the scenes contribute to you as an advertiser making connections to consumers? These are really sophisticated things. And then you talk about Google's role in education and Google's role in healthcare and other aspects where you need a voice that is able to cut through some of that complexity and, and make the solutions really easy to understand and accessible. And to your point, do that credibly, right? So I, I think that's the real reason why the evangelist role is so relevant at, for Google and, and, and really so successful because they were able to find people who could do just that. Yeah. And uh, there's the two words that really stick out to me there are value, uh, which you offered right off the top and complexity. Mm -hmm. And I think the intersection mm -hmm. of uh, complexity in a product or service environment or experience um, to unlock the true value or perhaps even to layer on or wrap the whole thing in additional value. I think evangelism has a lot to do with that. Um, so your path, let's talk a little bit about your path through the organization. Again, you were there for um, sure. yeah. over a decade. You started as head of industry, director of analytics, global head of analyst development, um, and then this chief evangelist, chief strategist role. Um Talk about that progress and then to the or process or flow yes. um, and perhaps maybe even generalize to some of the other evangelists to the degree that you knew them. Did they also, I'm assuming that most of them probably came up in the organization, same as you did, rather than yes. being recruited in from the outside. But um, so I know it's kind of too layered, but share yeah. anything that um, that you think would be interesting or helpful for folks interested in a podcast like this one. Yeah. Yeah, my, my path was an, an interesting one. And it, it really, you know, I think that that journey that I went on, because I had multiple stops, because I saw the organization from a, a variety of different um, perspectives, contributed to my capabilities as an evangelist, right? I started, as you, as you read, um, 
on the sales side. I, I led a sales team, a media sales team. I mean, I, I'd spent the previous seven years leading strategic analytics at a advertising agency, Foot Cone and Belding, Draft FCB. Um, I, I knew media, but uh, and I certainly knew how to sell services, but walking into a client's office and, and trying to convince them to invest more in Google search was something that I really hadn't done. Um, but frankly, there wasn't much of a need at that time when I joined way back in the early days of Google for a great deal of analytics on the sales side, frankly. Uh, you know, our sales uh, uh, pitch was kind of walking into a client's office and saying, hey, we've got YouTube. What are your reach goals? How much of this do you want? And you know search is a money machine for you. How much more can you invest? There wasn't a great deal of sophistication when it was done right. Over time, right, complexity increased, but also so did competition. Uh, and we just reached a point where we knew that, hey, for us to be successful, we are going to need more of a fact-based approach. We're going to need more measurement, you know, all the things that um, platforms are certainly very, very deep and good at now. So I, I was lucky enough to be the first, first person in the uh, U.S. hired into a role that would build out the analytics groups on the media sales side. Me and uh, three other uh, colleagues took up different sectors, built out these teams, and uh, did that for a number of years and then had some really, really, really valuable experiences driving some uh, DEI-based uh, um, uh, projects for Google. One of them was a uh, the Google uh, Data Analyst Certification that it was done in partnership with Coursera, intended to really give people who were, were uh, from disadvantaged backgrounds or non-traditional education routes the kind of uh, understanding and, and skills that they needed to be successful data analysts. I'm so proud of that work that's still going on. Hundreds of thousands, probably at this point, close to a million people have been through that certification. It's been very successful. And then in the last few years is when I pivoted into the evangelist role. So I'd seen the organization in a number of different ways and from a number of different perspectives. And that, that helped me talk to clients and just understand how Google could help them broadly and more globally than just buy a search ad, right? And to your, your second question, the other evangelists had done the same thing, right? They, they had moved through the organization. They had seen different places. They had built their expertise um, and they, uh, they landed on the team well before me. I was, I was one of the last few additions to the team, uh, which, uh, uh some people had been there, boy, I think on that team for nearly as long as I've been at Google. Um, so it's the, the evangelist role, to your point, is something that was always really important for, for Google on a, a long-term, long-time long team. So the evangelist in, in their various forms and the various functions that they're uh, evangelizing were a team unto themselves. Yes, uh, they were. Now, to your point, there, there were, there were, evangelists kind of scattered throughout the organization who were in there in support of particular verticals or particular products. But this team that I was on, the uh, were uh, on the media sales side. Our role was to work with Google's largest customers and uh, help them 
help them break through their biggest challenges, right? My superpower, if you will, was analytics. Um, I had a colleague who, who uh, focused on creative strategy, a, a client, uh, another colleague who focused on um, digital transformation and innovation, another on measurement, right? So we all had sort of our, our own uh, practice areas, if you would. But uh, often when we would bring a client into Mountain View for the big Google experience, all of us evangelists would wind up on a... Uh, you know, an agenda for them is spending 45 minutes an hour with them, just talking through the latest developments in our, in our specific areas or to give them the, the sense that Google had thought leaders and we were on the, the cutting edge and, and, and uh, were there for them uh, to, to in support. Uh, at risk of asking the obvious and perhaps yeah. at risk of asking you to restate yourself, which I'm not, I don't intend to do, um, obviously these very large accounts had account management, you know, they had probably, uh, a primary or, or a set of mm -hmm. contacts in the organization. Those people had mm -hmm. resources. They probably had people behind people. You, the biggest customers probably had a lot of just generally speaking, account management, account support, mm -hmm. customer success mm -hmm. beyond thought leadership. Is there a reason, um, that is worth talking out? to have this extra team of matched superheroes, so to speak, to kind of come in to, to provide even more. Um, Certainly there is. Yeah. yeah I mean, for, for a number of reasons, like a look, I was one of those head of industries. I was one of those people who had the direct client relationships. They saw me every day, right? The, the ability to say, I'm bringing in an expert, someone who you haven't met, someone who has done this, this, and this, right? Um, uh, just makes that account feel more special, gives them more attention. Yeah. So, it, so there's definitely an aspect of salesmanship uh, playing there. But also, look, and I know again, because I was a head of industry, I am fully immersed in, say, Nestle. I am not looking much outside of Nestle. I can't. My my, I have just as many hours in a day as everybody else, uh, and that is certainly a full time job uh, managing an account like that. To to be able to talk to someone who has just in the last year spoken to literally two hundred other accounts and seen things change and picked up on trends, wow, that's that's a great perspective. So that's what we would do. I mean, I literally I was talking to to hundreds of, of accounts in a year as an evangelist and, and gaining that perspective. So, um, so yeah, I, I think there was, there was great benefit there, both from kind of a showmanship salesmanship perspective, but also a real tangible benefit of new perspectives, broader perspectives, uh, brought to the, to the account as well. How did that transition come about for you? Was it something that you were looking for? Was it someone else's idea? Was it, how did that how did you find yourself in that role? Or was it just like a natural thing? It was like, well, it seems like this is just what should happen. Oh, yeah, it was a natural. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it was a very natural pivot for me. And, and I knew that team. I mean, you know, I, I knew them from um, when, again, when I was first at Google, I brought in evangelists to my account. So I always knew those guys. I worked with them and they also, and I would do this as well uh, when I was an evangelist, it, it, 
very accessible to Google Googlers. Uh, and if there's a question that they have, not necessarily something that they're trying to solve for their client or that they want their client to eventually hear, just any question at all in the space, um, evangelists are there to to connect with uh, with Googlers and and just educate, inform uh, those sorts of things. When it came time, I had reached sort of the end of the uh, analytics role, leading the the sales analytics team. I did that for six seven years, and at Google, man, six seven years is like 60, 70 years. Um, I was on. I was ready for something new. Uh, I didn't know what it was going to be exactly, but. I looked at a number of roles, and and when that one became a distinct possibility, it's all I wanted to do. And man, it was a great role. I, I really, really love doing the work as an evangelist for sure. Um, step a little, a little bit more into that. You know, you already described, you know, consulting, uh, the, you know, the biggest accounts, um, at, at the request of the people managing those accounts. What else did the? I mean, and thought leadership is certainly associated here. Um, what else did like a good week or a good month or a good quarter look like for you? Like yeah. what were some of the activities, um, from a functional standpoint of you yeah. feeling like I'm really delivering as an evangelist? Yeah. I mean, the, the primary way I felt like I and all the rest of the evangelists were delivering was standing and delivering to clients. Right. And so that, that was not only the time that, that we were in the room with them doing that, but also all the prep work that goes into that. Right, meeting with the teams, understanding their challenges, and so in a good week, I was doing a lot of that, and seeing to our earlier discussion all sorts of different perspectives and different verticals and industries, and just learning. Hey, this is working over here. Why don't they do this over here? Right, challenging the sales teams, kind of pushing them. So having those really engaging, um, interesting conversations were certainly a hallmark of a good week. On top of that, we were writing a lot. And I love to write. And so writing white papers, writing um, um, entries for our, our Google blog, um, writing internal pieces that, you know, the the way that that would work would be a, a new POV on a particular technology or something that we would then give to the sales teams who could send that to a client and say, hey, here's the perspective on something that I think is interesting to you. If you want to meet the person who wrote this, why don't you come in, right? That's that all connected kind of sales process work. But a good week involved all of those things. And I'll tell you, just intellectually stimulating and interesting and fun and challenging and terrifying and all those, all those things kind of wrapped into one um, made for made for a good week as an evangelist. Awesome. Um, there, you know, when before we recorded this conversation, we had a prior one, and you were talking a bit about the risk inherent in the role. Yeah. Um, yeah. You were fresh off their decision that they could afford not to have some of this team. How yes. much of the team was yeah. lost? What you know, and and in hindsight, how are you yeah. thinking about that experience now? Yeah, yeah. The you know the uh, the further at Google and and certainly any any platform, particular platform that is relying on ad sales, the further you get away from that client relationship, I think perceptually the less value you are creating or the less um, the attribution of value, right, is is more difficult. And so I knew moving into that evangelist role, I no longer had a quota. Um, I wasn't responsible for a number. I couldn't point to sales revenue and say, we did this. I mean, certainly, look, we would do studies to say, hey, um, how did revenue at 
uh, accounts that that we were involved in compared to those that we weren't that we weren't right. And we we do all sorts of um, uh, exercises to try to quantify our value, but it was really really difficult. And so yeah, my team was hit really hard. The evangelist team was hit very hard during the the first round of layoffs for Google back in January. Uh, our boss was uh, affected and impacted. Our team was cut in half. Um, the support team that we were working with, who would really handle our bookings and and promote us out to the sales teams and and fill our calendar, that team was decimated. So there, it was clearly um, there was a perspective. Uh, I'm going to guess not so much from Google. I would think more from the consultants that were handling the the severance exercise. Uh, that these evangelists were a little too far away from the actual sale and probably a bit expendable. I, I can I can step back now and understand that. Look, we were seasoned seasoned veterans at Google. We were expensive. I get it. Right. Uh, and on top of that, we were very much focused on digital ad sales. Google, as we've seen, is trying desperately to pivot away from that a bit, just to diversify their revenue in some way, um, and are particularly focused now on the dogfight with ChatGPT and Bing and, and um, all the things that AI means for search. So if you look at the people who were impacted, they were all on the on the that media sales side, it wasn't AI engineers, right? Uh, largely. Uh, and, and so I, I can understand what, what Google was doing. I don't have any hard feelings. Um, the only thing that, that does make it somewhat difficult is understanding that, man, we were doing, we were working so hard. We were at the highest level of our client uh, organizations. We were having real influence it was just so hard to quantify, right? And the idea that because we couldn't quantify it is why the team was seen as less valuable um, is a little is a difficult pill to swallow for sure. Um, but hey, look, I'm going to be fine. Uh, all of the people on my team who were impacted are fine, um, and I wish Google well. Uh, I don't think they'll be as successful without us, but I do definitely wish them well. Thank you for for walking through that and uh, and with the grace I expected you to do it with. Um, so I, what I want to get into because I've had a conversation like what you shared, um, not necessarily with a definitive outcome, but a lot of people have asked me over the past few years. You know, this seems kind of risky for the reason you already identified, mm -hmm. which is um, revenue adjacent, not revenue mm -hmm. direct. Yep. Um, yep. correlation, not causation, yep. evidence, yep. not proof. Um, you are a, a marketing analytics expert. Mm -hmm. Um, describe, yeah. describe some of what you went through to attempt to quantify the value. Um, and, and what you could say with some confidence and what was still in kind yeah. of like this murky zone. What, what I'm hoping for is, is for people who aren't doing any kind of activity measurement yeah. and or correlation to some outcomes to at least create a little bit of a case 
people who don't really even know what to do there and or people who've tried all kinds of things and not been successful. I want you to satisfy both of those people because I expect you will. Yeah. There, I mean, there were some very simple measures that we used and then some that were a little bit of a stretch. The whole idea, to your point, was just to prove the value, the impact we were having. So we would look at things like utilization. How many times are we presenting to clients um, for white papers we wrote or others? You know, you, you would look at distribution, um, impressions, those any, any kind of idea that, yes, lots of people are using this. It is having an effect. It's getting traction. We would look at repeat um, engagement as well. If a if a client had a conversation with us and then wanted more, that was definitely seen as a good thing. Um, so those those three, um, all around this bucket of call it utilization or or engagement, um, adding I guess customer satisfaction CSAT scores as well, right as a follow up to the experience. Those things combined to say, um, are you uh, are you perceived as good at what you're doing and contributing positively or not? Right. And so that was a uh, the easier part to me- to measure. The harder is what I alluded to before was what was the effect we were having on revenue, right? And and I would have conversations with clients, and you could see in the executive's eyes the light bulb go off, and them saying, you know what, you're right, we should be doing this. I had many of those conversations. They were glorious conversations. And you knew that the revenue that was going to follow was because of the talk that that we had had, right? Or, um, and the certainly the, the ability of the account team then to execute on that, pick up the ball from where you know we moved it and, and continue forward. Doing that kind of modeling was, was difficult. Google's a, a multi-billion dollar company. This revenue is flowing considerably. There are so many things that are influencing advertisers' decision to invest in Google or not, um, but, but also just invest in digital advertising or not, right? And so when headwinds would arise like the like, uh, uh, economic downturns, you know, it doesn't matter who I'm speaking to or what I'm telling them sometimes it's just too much to to climb through so anyways you know we we would try to do as i described hey what accounts that we talked to this quarter what was their growth um what were the accounts that we didn't talk to what was their growth right and and see if there was any kind of comparison that we could drive there or value that we could drive there um because as as we said at the end of the day it's about the revenue right Revenue uh, is is the most important um, element of any sales team and sales organization. And so uh, proving that we are having impact there was the most important and still the most elusive thing that we were trying to do. Hey, thanks for listening to Chief Evangelist. For so many reasons, podcasting is a great opportunity and channel for evangelism. If you've been thinking about a podcast or you want to shift production and promotion to a team that's especially evangelist friendly, check out ringmaster.com. Their Connect Engage Scale program is designed for evangelist powered podcasting for software and tech companies in the growth stage. Again, you can learn more at ringmaster.com. They're also the team behind this podcast. Speaking of chief evangelist, let's get back to it. You've been teaching. Uh, at some point, amid all of this, uh, you had a pandemic P 
peak pandemic release of the book that you wrote. Uh, so yes. I assume you were writing that pre-pandemic and maybe had yes. some, you know, touring or or a different form of support for the yeah. launch of the book involved. Yeah. I guess let's start with the book. Like, what was the spark yeah. for you? Um, was this was this something you were just doing um for your own uh interest and passion and desire? Was this at all because you were at Google at the time? Was this just complimentary? And like talk about the yeah. origin of the book and where you yeah. saw it in your place in yeah. both um further developing probably i think you i think you might tell me something like the process of actually writing the book helped to develop my expertise further blended with obviously demonstrating it and sharing it yeah yes i mean the, the, so the genesis of the book the book came out of the teaching that i was doing and the real motivation even just to be honest was that i could not find a textbook that i liked uh digital analytics moves so quickly that anything I found that was already printed wasn't uh, wasn't tackling some of the uh, contemporary issues or um, certainly um, addressing some of the things that I wanted students thinking about, right? So I realized I had 700 whatever pages of lecture notes and that I could pretty easily massage that into a book. Uh, and so, yeah, during the pandemic, when we all had a little more time on our hands, um, because <laughs> the other things that we were doing were no longer possible. Uh, I sat down and 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 wrote that uh, uh, wrote that book. I, I had a wonderful editor that I met, um, Don Wolf, who was spectacular. Helped me shape that book and the content very very much, and make it make it make it better. Um, and then I I I went the self publishing route as well, which I, I did that specifically because it gives me so much more control over the product. I want to be, I want to know what I'm teaching to. I want it to be authentically me and I can update it quickly. I'm, I'm I will be releasing the third uh, edition here shortly. Um, and because things are moving so quickly in the space, um, that self-publishing route was, uh, was the, the right decision for me and something that I'm glad that, I'm certainly glad that we did. That's awesome. Is it, and I assume, um, well, I actually I don't, I'm not going to, I'm going to make no assumptions. Yeah. How do you sell a textbook? Yeah. I, I mean, it's, you know, um, we promote it through the course, uh, the courses that I teach, uh, we make it typically it is a recommended reading. Uh, sometimes it's a required reading. Um, it's affordable, right? It's nothing that, um, is is going to to break uh, break any student's bank there there are hard copy versions that you can get but also electronic versions that are really uh really affordable and so we just promote it in that way i haven't done a great deal of promotion outside of the course because the real intent of this was to be a companion to to the the digital marketing analytics classes that i was teaching yeah, um, which then is the bridge into. So you've been teaching mm -hmm. at multiple universities for yeah. what a dozen years ish. Yeah. How did I, that I start and why? Just really serendipitously, you know, I, I had a friend who was teaching a class at the University of Chicago, and she came to me one day and said, "Hey, uh, I was having a discussion with the dean, and they would really like to offer an analytics class. Would you be interested in teaching ever?" 
And, uh, you know, I remember later that week, I went and sat in on a class just to see what it was like. And it feels like a few weeks after that, I was in front of 30 students. Um, and so these were in the early days of, of analytics, really. The things were just kind of starting to take off. I built a course syllabus with the reading and all the, all the things that I had learned and from the people that I had learned, people like Michael Fosna, people like um, uh, Donna Wong uh, and, and others that, uh, that really influenced the way that I think about analytics and, and data visualization and other important aspects of the science. Uh, and, and, um, uh, you know, I, 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 I built that syllabus and it became frankly, a little bit of a mark, uh, a marketable product. You know, the next thing I knew that another university was calling me and saying, Hey, we're, we're interested in an analytics course. We, we know that you're doing some teaching. Would you like to teach here? And, and the adjunct function or, or role is a really easy one for a university. I mean, it, it's, it's not much of an investment. Um, it's, it's the way that you can pull practitioners in. I think I would, I'd like to think I was pretty unique um, in um, the fact that I, I was working at Google and then teaching in the evenings and being able to bring that in. I don't think there are a lot of people who are doing that. So that, uh, I think, made uh, my contributions more attractive to other universities as well. And it just sort of took off from there. And I love doing it. Like I just absolutely fell in love with the idea of, of lecturing. Once I got better at it, once I learned how to do it, the, the first courses that I taught, the students were really gracious. Thank you. know, God bless them. But I was used from my advertising years to just standing on a stage and talking at people. I wrote for my 30 hours of class time, 30 hours of me standing on a stage talking at my students, right? It was, it must've been a, a miserable experience. Um, so you learn how to build exercises and more engagement and discussion and those sorts of things into the experience. And now that I, I have all that, I feel like a much better instructor, right? Um, and it's, it, it makes a much better experience for me and for the students. And it's just something that I really, really do enjoy. I love it. And, and I, I'm going to assume that, um, not only did uh, you become a better lecturer slash professor through that observation, I'm going to guess that that work, because um, you weren't doing it for the money, I'm just no, going to assume. No. Yeah, no. <laughs> and no. so you were doing it because, um, and, and I heard this in the way that you were talking about the courses that you built to support um, a wider variety of people having access to developing very marketable skills, you know, through your mm -hmm. DEI initiatives. Um, I'm going to assume that you were doing this partly out of a, a personal passion to, um, essentially evangelize, um, yeah. everything that you had learned and things that other people had taught you. And I'm also going to assume that it made you better during the day at Google as well. It like that they're so complimentary. Did. Absolutely. So symbiotic. I mean, I'll tell you, Ethan, like there's nothing like having to stand up in front of 30 people and talk like you know like what you're talking about. Um, there's no greater motivator for you to really understand what it is you are talking about. And, and you know, the, the universities I was teaching at, the uh, top, top students, really smart students. And many of them didn't have the practical experience, but they had the curiosity. And so they would ask a lot of really probing deep questions. 
And, and that would get me thinking. And then I could carry that kind of curiosity and uh, over to, you know, my, my Google day job. And it just, it, both of them made me better. The experiences from Google were feeding the discussions I could have in the classroom. Those discussions in the classroom were, were feeding my, uh, my, uh, things I would do at Google. The other thing about it as well, and I think this really benefited me as an evangelist was the, the need to make uh, technology uh, and everything digital accessible to students, right? And sometimes I feel like if you are at a place like Google, you lose that perspective of what everyone outside of Google knows or understands or is comfortable with, right? And so because I was so practiced in making everything so accessible for students, it was easy for me to have conversations with uh, with our clients. Uh, I never assumed that anyone understood acronyms or knew what I was, you know, the, the, these concepts that I was bringing in. So you would start in a place of, of great accessibility and then you could ratchet up or down as far as as high or low as you needed to go. But that that was a great lesson, I think, that I took from the proving grounds of the lecture hall into my conversations with, you know, multinational brands and, and the C-level the, the executives um, inside those accounts. So I'm storytelling, analogy, metaphor, those come to mind when I think about how to um, make um, deep or complex things be more approachable without being patronizing. Mm -hmm. Um what were some of the some of the techniques or methods? Yeah. Like, how did you make these more approachable for people? Because yeah, most frameworks. Of most, yeah, 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 yeah. Just the, you know, the idea of bringing in tried and true frameworks. And this is, I use these things quite a bit in my in my course courses as well, right? The idea of the the consumer decision journey from McKinsey is a brilliant way to think about any consumer decision, and it's such a perfect way to get brands to. Stop thinking about themselves as going out and going out to the market and, and, and rather from the consumer's perspective of the experiences they're having and how they're navigating everything happening, right? Things like that. Things like that Google talked about as well, the uh, zero moment of truth, right? How that revolutionized the P&G idea of the first moment of truth, the second moment of truth, um, and, and the whole shopping experience, right? Just, just these, these kind of base concepts uh, that you know, I would use in the, the classroom to help students understand the digital world around them. These are the same things that I made, I was able to bring in to my client conversations and make, make things much more accessible. Um, and the wonderful thing about frameworks like that, right, is that, yeah, they are simplified. They're, they're a model. They're a simplification of some kind of complexity so that you can get your head around it. But the power then is how it allows you to solve those really complex challenges, um, um, and 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 so that uh, I think that that benefited me tremendously um, in 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 my role as an evangelist. The the kind of thing, the the understanding, the the knowledge that I had built in experience I had built in communicating those ideas to students. Love it. That's the way you described that gave me a visualization of like, you've got this big, messy, complex topic yeah. 
And by allowing people to view it through different frameworks, you're allowing them maybe grab handles or something, some way of like yeah. getting a hold of it and, and, and managing it and, and exploring it and manipulating it and, and working yeah. with it in a way that would have been too difficult without that kind of handling or, or, you know, mechanics around it. Um, yeah. I like the framework language. Well, and I'll tell you, like my job as an evangelist is not to be right and to convince you of what is right. It is to get you to understand your problem in a different way so that you can solve it and to help you there. Right. So that's where the, these ideas of frameworks and, and conceptual ideas are so important. Right. It, you know, I, and I was very much borrowing from my early experience at A.T. Kearney and, and consulting where you're doing really the same thing. You know, A.T. Kearney, we were talking about sourcing ceiling tile, uh, not, not, not sexy things like digital analytics and marketing, but, but all the same. Like the, the idea of getting these concepts through to a client, the, the basic idea is still the same. You have, you have a big job. Um, you were writing a book for some of this period. You were teaching at more than one university during this period. You have a family. How did you, and I'm asking this on behalf of all the folks I've had conversations yeah. with both on this co podcast and, and not on this podcast, but other, other, other evangelists, you yeah. know, there's a lot of, um, and I'm going to tie it to get back to the risk in the role too. I mean, most evangelists I talk with, um, have ill-defined jobs. They have a number of people they can benefit. Essentially, you can help someone across the entire customer journey from prospect to, you know, 10-year renewed and expanded customer. And yep. you can help the customer directly and or the team members on your own side who are, you know, so they can do that better. Um, all these opportunities. And I think most people want to say yes to everything because mm -hmm. they don't know what's going to hit. They need more people in their corner when it comes time to like, you know, scrutinize a budget and go line by line, you know? So for example, I know that if you went to most of our AEs and most of our CSMs, they would say, yes, that, that person has helped make me money or helped me make money easier, more quickly and or more often at some point. Right. So mm -hmm. you say yes to everything. And then all of a sudden you're like, oh my gosh, this is terrible. Yeah. I'm totally overwhelmed. Yeah. I can't manage yeah. my So knowing all the things that you were doing yeah. at any given time and knowing yeah. you have a, a personal life on top of that, of course, um, which some people sacrifice, um, which I don't know is a long-term winning strategy, but um, any thoughts or advice on how you were able to, I mean, yeah. it's all complementary work. Yeah. I think there's something in that. There's an efficiency yeah. in the fact that these aren't yeah. three disparate things. You're writing a book about the thing that you're teaching, about the thing that yeah. you've learned and taught and sold. Yeah. 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 It, um, yes. There were a number of column keys to, to me being successful in that role and, and balancing all of those things. Um, you know, primarily among them, I had a wonderful partner in in my wife who was very supportive of the things I was doing. She knew they were important to me. Um, she knew that they were important for my professional career and, and, and growth and progression. And so she was very supportive of me doing those things. Um, so that was that was critically important, right? I couldn't have done it without her and without that support. The second was, you know, I I really placed a premium on being present 
when I did have time with my family, right? And and so, and and prioritizing that, um, and with my sons, with my daughter, uh, with my my siblings, right? And and just really focused on being very present in those in those moments, um, uh, and 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 making that connection. There was also, you know, a great deal of help from from Google and particularly my my boss there in just setting some boundaries around say travel or boundaries around the number of client engagements that we could take on in any given week right so we were doing some load um, management as well on the google end uh, and i think all of those things really combined to help me be as balanced as you as i could like we discussed, like I'm moving into a new chapter in my career, and I am so thankful for that. Teaching full time at Notre Dame, doing some consulting work on the side, it's I'm sure going to be a much different life than the one I was leading when I was adjuncting all over the place and working, you know, um, uh, for my days during the day at Google. So uh, I am looking forward to a slower pace, uh, for sure. But when I look back at that time and all the things that I was balancing, that support I got from my family, the, the, the drive, the, the, uh, the priority I placed on being present with my family when we had those times, and then the help that I received from, from Google um, and, and my manager to, to make things more manageable, I think all, all really helped make me successful in that, in that role. Really good. I think that focus on um, what is here and now and creating periods where that is that does get your full attention. Mm -hmm. um, it's also a matter of prioritizing, yeah. um, not, not prioritizing these multiple options, but putting priority on what is happening right now and the people who are, yes. who you're present with. Um, and that's it, which kind of leads me. I, this is going to be a little bit of a doubling back, but you have such a depth of expertise in in analytics. And I just want, I want to hear another go, if you can, um, to the degree I'm not asking you to say the same thing again, around this idea of, I think, tell me if you believe what I'm saying. Sure. Analytics um, and a lot of the tools that we have, uh, we have a better look into what's happening, how often, when, by whom. Um, we can draw a lot of other um, conclusions um, and ask a lot more questions because of what we can now see. But mm -hmm. so much of what's happening remains outside of our view. It is in things like um, trust and wisdom, <laughs> um, uh, ethical considerations, like like the the human decision making process that mm -hmm. results in observable behavior, whether those are clicks on things mm -hmm. or, or other measurable behaviors, I think we have to still intuit a lot of that. Where I'm, where I'm dwelling here is um, I th one of my theses around this show is that especially in this era when the machine is more capable and more exciting and more threatening to more people than ever before, yeah. good, bad, and otherwise, um, and part of that is just attitudinal. I st I, th I feel very confident that there is an important place for uh, a human being oh. 
who embodies the ideas, the best practices, the mission, vision, values, point of view about the world that has had a lot of customer contact that can on the fly in, in a present reactive way, surface the right stories, surface the right examples, notice that light bulb moment and pursue it. Notice that the light bulb hasn't gone on and work that a little bit harder in a very unique and powerful human way. And the fact that we can't measure the benefit of it, I just feel like, I I guess generally macroeconomic trends puts that under a distinct pressure. No one was probably worried about it, you know, in 2020 when everything like somehow came back on the rails really quickly and then all of a sudden the job market was hotter than ever and everything was unlike any economist would have ever predicted. Um, and And then here we are now with the, with the echo effects of that, but talk to me about the things that we cannot capture track and measure because these are still human endeavors and how how do you all think about that i mean did you write any positions on what's out of you know the purview of measurable um yeah tooling yeah i yeah i think that the only i mean the biggest inhibitor there was privacy right look Mm -hmm. the, the data that's collected on consumers that's the line that the, the line is is uh, is drawn through this this idea of privacy and uh, consumers need to know who's collecting data on them how that data is being used for what purpose and they need to have the ability to claim that data back or turn that data off should they not wish so that sets really the limit of what we can collect um, the uh, you know, you talk about how the, the consumer decision journey, the, the things that are going into driving behavior are so much more complex than it was five years ago, let alone 10 years ago, right? So many more influences, so many more chances for brands to connect with consumers, but um, the, the amount of data that all of those activities are generating have just grown exponentially well, which has left us to where you're saying, you know, at a point where the machinery is now growing exponentially uh, and, and, and letting us uh, consume those data, find patterns in those data, find learnings, right? I think, I think what gets to your question is the part that that machinery will never be able to replicate and replace is an unmistakably human ability for empathy, right? And to understand who that consumer is, what they are thinking, what is motivating them, how they are experiencing this fast-growing digital world around them, right? The machines can't do that. Um, and that's why the, the, the human analyst is still so vitally important as a part of that, uh, of a, a real true part of that machinery right as well as just the other things that you know you kind of talked about it intuition uh curiosity uh, had generating those questions right um uh, you know large language models are fantastic at generating content they're not innovative and so cons- it's a human that needs to bring in innovation to these these elements as well so yeah i completely agree with your point that there is an unmistakable vital role of the human in 
analytics, no matter how complex the world around us gets, no matter how much the machinery grows uh, to to help that human make better decisions, there's still there's still a vital role and position for that that human at the center of it all. Very good. I'm going to call that an approximate button on this because you've been really generous with your time. We've almost been together an hour now. (laughs) Before I let you go, though, Kevin, I would love to ask kind of a fun question that I ask everyone, which is what is something you find yourself evangelizing in your own personal life? And what is what is some what is something that someone close to you perhaps has accused you of evangelizing? It's another way to think about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, some of your listeners might not like it, but I am a diehard Notre Dame football fan. And so I know that I get accused of evangelizing that quite a bit. Um, but I think, you know, the thing that I honestly, the thing that I try to evangelize in my life is this idea of respect for each other. I am like so many of us, I am, I am just so disgusted by many of the developments that I've seen over the last few years and the the places that we are as just a society. Um, So one of the things that I try to do and try to live my life as is with acceptance and trying to seek understanding. And um, uh, that makes me much happier. And I think anyone, anyone who can embrace those ideas would be much happier as well. And I will, I will go to my grave fighting for a kinder, gentler, more under uh, uh, society that is seeking to understand, right? Rather than pass judgment for sure. Beautiful, really well done. And uh, I also appreciate the um, the modeling, even if it's self-motivated, you know, it makes me feel better. It's still like this idea of modeling it is the thing. Yeah. And I think that's also fundamental to evangelism too. Yeah. I'm not asking you to do anything yeah. I haven't committed to do myself, Yeah, yeah. you know? Right. Um, yeah. And also, uh, as a University of Michigan grad, I do <laughs> miss like the ever-present rivalry with Notre Dame. I it's know. one of the great college football rivalries, and I'm sorry, it's just it's just been a missing piece in my life. Uh, yes. And so, anyway, I, I don't, I, I generally don't root for Notre Dame, but I do, I do respect the team and miss the yes. rivalry. That's that's and and I, I have the same feelings back towards the University of Michigan and SC and all of our. Our, our our big rivals, right? It's it's one based in respect as it should be. There there's, yeah. there doesn't football should not be generating hatred. Yeah, <laughs> you totally. know, it's like it's a sport. Uh, so um, yes, I I but but couldn't agree with you more, Ethan. Awesome, Kevin. If uh, people have stuck with us this long, they may want to connect with you. They may yeah. want to learn about the book. They might want to know about yeah. what you're. Where would you send people who've enjoyed this LinkedIn, conversation? LinkedIn is easy. I, I'm there. Um, you know, it's easy to connect with me and send me a note. Uh, I, I try to read every single direct message that I get um, on LinkedIn. So that that is probably the best place uh, for you to reach me or the, 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 the consulting work that we're doing. You can find out more about that at noranalytics.com, N-O-R-E analytics.com, named after the River Nor in Ireland, which has some historical significance to me and my family. Um, but you'll, you'll find a lot of great content and, and, uh, some ideas there. Awesome. Uh, I will link all that stuff up. It will be in the podcast episode description. Uh, we put, put these up at YouTube. We put them up at chiefevangelist.com. He is Kevin Hartman, spelled as it sounds. I am Ethan Butte. Last name is B-E-U-T-E. Hit us up on LinkedIn. We'd love to connect. And uh, I appreciate so much your time, Kevin. And I hope you have an awesome weekend. Of course. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed our conversation. That wraps up this episode of Chief Evangelist. 
Thank you for joining us. And thanks to Ringmaster Conversational Marketing for helping bring these episodes to you. With any thoughts or questions about the Chief Evangelist role, message me on LinkedIn. I'm Ethan Butte, E-T-H-A-N-B-E-U-T-E. For show notes and more of these conversations, visit chiefevangelist.com.